Before we begin, please refer to the disclaimers in the link on the podcast notes and note that none of the information provided during this update constitutes investment advice or a recommendation, solicitation, or offer by Galaxy Digital or its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. As always, I'm your host, Alex Thorne, head of firmwide research at Galaxy Digital. And I'm joined today by Christine Kim. How are you doing, Christine? Doing pretty well, Alex. How about you? I'm great. You're you're traveling. You're you're uh you're in Boston, my old stomping yes. ground. It's my first time here, and I will say everybody is so much friendlier here in Boston than in New York City. That like the, I, that is that's crazy. But I've it's true. It's true. Like the, there was this train station guy, and usually MTA officials in New York are just so so mean. But this <laughs> man at the train station, I'd never even asked for help, but he just like walked over to me. He was like, "Young lady, would you like some help getting to wherever you need to be going? Help me get the tickets, move me to where I needed to go, the correct exit, and everything." I, I I'm truly loving this city, Alex. I really. Love you were it. wearing. I think it, maybe he was bullish on the merge. You were wearing Ethereum clothing, were you not? I was. It's true. I was. (laughs) And you were you were in uh, Palo Alto last week, right? Uh, For some things around Stanford Blockchain Week. Yes, I was at MEV Day and ZK Day on the Friday. Um, The Stanford Blockchain Conference was actually from Monday to Wednesday, so I missed the entire conference. But I stayed for the other events that I really, the curated events that I wanted to go to. Um, and MEV Day was phenomenal. I think Flashbots always does a really good job of curating a, a list of topics and, and getting researchers uh, to talk about re- what really matters for MEV. I think for DevConnect, which I went to earlier this year, the main topic was like cross-chain MEV, the dark side and the light side of it. Um, and, and the one in, in this past one, the MEV Day one at SBC, the main topic was around block builder centralization. So I really like how Flashbots tackles just like the big issues around MEV and, and does a great job of creating, curating really good programming around these these issues. Yeah, I was, um, and, and by the way, I should tell our listeners, we're, we're also joined by Brandon Bailey from Galaxy, uh, Galaxy Mining, Galaxy's Bitcoin mining uh, and mining finance operation. We're going to get to Brandon um, for the whole like majority of this podcast. We're going to talk to him about his team's um, awesome mid-year uh, 2022 Bitcoin mining uh, update, which is a, a great white paper. Uh, you can read it on our website galaxy.com slash research. Um, it follows up on the Bitcoin mining team at Galaxy's year-end report, which we put out in January. I think that was called uh, Bit- 2021 Bitcoin Mining's Big Year. Um, I think this update is going to put a lot of that. A lot has changed. Let me put it that way. A lot has changed since uh, the end of 2021 uh, in the Bitcoin mining industry. We'll get to that uh, in a moment with Brandon. Um, I, before we get in, we're going to talk about some quick some quick news here. Uh, before we do that, uh, two things. One, markets are, are are pretty tenuous still. We don't have Bimnet, a BBR friend from Galaxy Digital Trading, on today. Um, but you know, we've seen Bitcoin is trading below nineteen thousand. Um, right, it's Wednesday, September seventh, as we record this. ETH is below fifteen hundred or right around it. So both have been struggling. I think Bitcoin's clearly been underperforming. Um, ETH BTC, frankly, is somewhat near um, yearly highs. Um, and so even multi-year highs, I think 0.088 was the ETH BTC high earlier, earlier this year, actually, sorry, at the end of 2021. Um, and, and right now it's trading around 
three. Uh, so there's definitely some, I think, some relative some relative trading going on between Bitcoin and ETH. I mean, it makes sense. You've got Ethereum with all of this hype and catalyst around the merge. Obviously, we've been talking about it a long time. Uh, Bitcoin sort of, you know, not performing as an inflation asset, not uh, inflation hedge um, in the way that some thought it might, you know, not not performing as an uncorrelated asset. Right. So sort of I think investors are, are, are really looking for footing and, and trying to figure out, you know, how, how to how to consider Bitcoin in this environment. Meanwhile, ETH is really sucking a lot of the air out of the room in, in what is also a low liquidity environment. So. Um, other stuff happening. I mean, Europe Nord Stream pipeline like permanently shut down now. Like we're talking about curbing uh, curbing electricity use and putting price caps on Russian um, energy. A uh, whole bunch of the U.S. yen is at uh, yen is trading at its lowest in literally years. I think more than twenty years against the dollar. A um, whole bunch of tumult happening in traditional markets that are also weighing on things. Um, but we'll we'll leave that there. I don't think t- fundamentally the picture has changed much since last week uh, when we talked with BIMnet. So, um, you know, I before we even get to the quick hits, Christine, I you know you mentioned block builder centralization, and I was listening to the podcast that Brian Armstrong and Vitalik did um, on the Coinbase podcast hosted by Victor Boonin. Um, it was quite a good discussion. You know, I was struck, and I don't mean this to sound particularly critical, but. You know, Vitalik was asked about um, block builder centralization, and and you know he's talking about PBS, um, which is proposer builder separation. Is that right? Is that how I say? It? Um, yeah. And it's like creating all these new entities, right? You have today, you have nodes, you have transactors, you have miners. Um, then you added, then we added flashbots. You've got these MEV auctions, and you've got the parties that play there, the searchers and the relayers. And, and now with the validators, you're going to have, you're going to have block builders and validators, and you're going to have searchers and relayers. And now they're talking about like, it, it just seems like sort of a never ending cascade of like mitigations that need to happen to prevent centralization. I mean, Vitalik was saying, oh, PBS would be great, but then we will also have to consider how to make sure that the block builders don't become centralized. And it feels like every time they come up with one of these new sort of um, like one mitigation leads to a new problem that then they have to mitigate and it constantly leads to a new problem. And now you've got like, you know, five or seven different classes of entities that they have to control for in ETH. I mean, that complexity seems like something that's sort of never ending. It just struck me as as just a general risk here that like there always is going to be some new vector for attack. Uh, when it comes to censorship and stuff. I don't know what your thoughts are on that or if you had a chance to listen to that podcast. I haven't had a chance to listen to that podcast, but I definitely hear you in the sense that Ethereum is becoming a lot more complex of a system. Like with the merge upgrade itself, this is one of the most complex upgrades that developers have ever had to pull off in Ethereum's history. And it's not just because of the complexity around merging and transitioning over to proof of stake. It's also because of the complexity around how MEV is changing the landscape of Ethereum and how the mitigation tactics for Ethereum in terms of MEV are becoming a lot more sophisticated. Um, And I think Ethereum's development kind of requires that this, this blockchain and this network becomes far more complex than Bitcoin. Because what Ethereum is trying to do in its functionality is so much more infinitely flexible than what Bitcoin can do. And I'm not, I think it's a huge experiment. We're not sure if like these problems and these risks are really something that Ethereum is going to be able to solve for. But Ethereum's value proposition is that it can 
be this very flexible, like Turing complete virtual machine that anybody can run decentralized applications on. And the question is, like, can you do that in a scalable, secure, decentralized manner at the end of the day? Um, one of the things that really gives me hope about the fact that these new actors are being introduced into the system is that you're creating further degrees of separation from the core protocol. So PBS removes the concern around validator centralization, and you offload that to another entity that doesn't actually build the blocks. They do build the blocks, but they're not the ones proposing the blocks. Um, and so I think that there's a bunch of other mitigation tactics that you can have to prevent block builders from becoming centralized, like CR lists. I'm not sure if Vitalik talked about that on the podcast, but it was something he talked about during MEV day. And it essentially makes it so that when you have a block builder, you can enforce a certain number of transactions, like a certain amount of that block space for validators. It's not like something that uh, the block builder. Itself yeah, it's did. like the leftover space where validators can throw in some some, you know, if block builders are, are censoring, then, you know, you'd still get in eventually type of thing. Exactly. Um, no, it, so, it, it makes sense. It's just sort of this never-ending project in that sense, right? I mean, eventually they'll say, "Oh, uh, you know, the ten percent aren't getting in. Like, we got to do something, another tweak, and, and another." But it's tweak. like those it, smaller problems, right? Like, are you solving for validator centralization, or are you solving for something that isn't super core to like the functionality and the decentralization and security of the protocol? And if the problems get smaller and smaller over time, like if we're trying to think about quantum security at one point down the road and everything else is solved, then I think it, it, it goes to show that the progression is still going in the way in a good direction. But I do agree with you that if we're just snowballing like small problems into bigger and bigger problems, that's when we really have to, to it, it's something to be concerned about. Like it's something to be wary of. I hear you. Yeah, it's quite interesting. Um, and it is significantly different than Bitcoin. We'll get into Bitcoin a lot with Brandon. Um, just a couple items here. Uh, the Bellatrix fork went live. That clears the way for the Paris hard fork next week, um, uh, which would complete the merge. Uh, the Bellatrix fork was a fork of the beacon chain um, that prepares it for the merge. Um, Christine, I mean, how did that go? Um, it seems like it went well. Yeah, it did. It did go well. Validator participation rate remained pretty high during the upgrade. And that's really so that important. means that they successfully upgraded basically the, a, a lot of validators. Yes, it does. Yeah. Um, there was some misinformation going around about how many validators did successfully upgrade. Um, it, From my understanding, if you look at the ratio of active validators to offline validators before Bellatrix happened, and then the ratio of active validators to offline validators after the upgrade happened, it's around 4 to 5% of validators that hadn't upgraded their machines. And that doesn't impact network finalization in significant ways. Like the network continues to function, it continues to progress through blocks and epochs, um, even if that, that 4 to 5% hadn't uh, upgraded and you know they're financially incentivized to, to upgrade eventually so that they can get rewards and they don't have to be exposed to like inactivity leak. Um, I think where the numbers around 20 to 25 percent of validators hadn't upgraded. Um, I've been seeing those numbers flying around and I think it's actually from the Ethernodes website. Ethernodes um, tracks the number of execution layer clients that are ready for the merge. Um, and to be clear, Bellatrix was an upgrade for consensus layer clients for validators who 
are running nodes on the beacon chain, as you said. Um, but there are still a large percentage of nodes on the execution layer side, so Ethereum mainnet, that haven't upgraded uh, for the merge. And I think that could be for a number of reasons. We know that there's quite a lot of node operators on Ethereum today that are actually miners. And miners wouldn't necessarily prepare their nodes for the merge. Um, so we might be seeing, we might not be seeing, you know, a full like 100% of nodes ready for the merge on Ether nodes because there, there could be some node operators that just don't ever upgrade their right. nodes. Right. Um, and, and also, you know, there's still a lot of nodes on Ethereum that aren't uh, public they're not public. Like it's not easy for ether nodes to be able to track them down. Um, so I think the twenty to twenty five percent was a little bit of a mischaracterization because ether nodes is is really a, a website that's tracking execution layer client um, readiness. Uh, but I think the Bellatrix upgrade went went smoothly considering everything. And um, now we're really looking ahead to Paris, which is going to be the final step of the merge. Awesome. Let's move on. Let's talk about ETH Classic. Uh, <laughs> this other uh, Ethereum that didn't didn't uh, perform in a, a quote irregular state transition uh, years ago to recover uh, funds that were hacked from the original DAO. ETH Classic ETC up nearly twelve percent and hash rate at an all time high. Um, this is this is ETH miners deciding to mine ETH Classic. Is it not? It, it must be. Yeah, it's more miners. Thinking that Ethereum Classic is going to be uh, profitable to to continue to mine post merge, I think it's a really great sign of confidence in Ethereum Classic's decentralized application ecosystem. Um, I think it's also good to see in comparison to how Ethereum Classic might compete with other proof of work versions of Ethereum. Um, I really, I I really have to say though around like proof of work versions of Ethereum, um, ETHW, the ETHW chain and the ETHW community, there's one part of it that really confounds me and that's how the ETHW miners intend to upgrade during the merge. I've, I've been reaching out on Twitter and so many different public forums on Discord, on Telegram to ask, you know, when are ETHW miners going to upgrade their machines for activating the ETHW chain? If there's a chain ID, if there's, you know, certain addresses that you've, you've publicly stated you're going to be freezing, all of this needs to happen through a hard fork on Ethereum. And hard forks generally happen at a block height. The merge is going to happen through a TTD threshold, and that means that there is no block height to really be able to pinpoint. So the ETHW has, community has a, has a problem on their hands where they need to decide how they're going to be, when they're going to be pushing this this upgrade, and I haven't seen too much communication around it. Yeah, when to actually like so-called launch the ETHW chain is a good question. Um, I don't know what it's, there's. It's going to be a tumultuous uh, couple days. Like for our for our audience, um, I think by current estimates, uh, the merge the Paris upgrade is expected to go live sometime on Tuesday, September thirteenth. Maybe Tuesday night is. What I saw the current current estimate was so we're entering into a period of uh, ne next week is going to be pretty exciting in terms of disruptions. I mean, we're waiting to see how all the service providers and trading firms and custodians and everyone else is going to actually, you know, fare through this through this event. Um, you know, even even assuming that the merge is executed successfully on Ethereum mainnet, I'm um, still going to be 
some some disruptions there. Okay, just a couple other quick hits here. Um, so ENS domain names, Ethereum domain names, they've they've spiked. They're the most traded asset on OpenSea. Um, volumes are up seventeen percent. That's higher than Bored Apes seven day volume. Um, I you know I have to say personally, I like to see this. This seems like a to me a much more you know uh, utility driven project than you know the NFT community concept, which, you know, I, I don't mean to knock, but decentralized DNS is something Satoshi talked about. It's been a long sought goal. And so, um, you know, I don't know, I guess people are what buying up like short, short domain names, you know, four and five letter domains, basically. Yeah. I, 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 I wonder if they're domain squatting, if there's like certain uh, domains that they think will become more valuable looking ahead after the merge right. versus before the merge, because ENS has been around for very long. Um, this is not a new service at all on Ethereum. And I think there's even been concern around this might dox you in certain ways if you interact with your ENS domain too much. And without Tornado Cash being a very reliable mixer for many US and non-US um, civilians, I guess I wonder if this is curious to me. Um, yeah. Do you have an ENS domain, Alex? I don't have a comment on that, uh, just generally. Um, Ethereum uh, today is kind of a privacy nightmare, and ENS domains make it worse. So, um, uh, But I, I like the project. I mean, I, I've always liked it. Um, I, I actually liked all of those projects. Handshake, um, what was the other one? Improbable domain, or Unstoppable domains. Um, those were all always interesting to me. So um, I think this is a, you know, I think, I just hate to see the, uh, you know, like when a domain is seized by the U.S. federal government, like a regular domain, and and you're like, you know, how how do they do that? You like go to the website, you, know, you read the news article. This happens all the time. Um, Tornado Cash uh, actually wasn't seized. Their their DNS uh, server was just like nuked by the provider itself. Um, but you like go and you see like the U.S. like customs and immigration logo on the website or something. <laughs> it never really made sense to me. Um, so, you know, some kind of decentralized DNS, I think, makes a lot of sense. I know we're talking a lot about Ethereum uh, related other news, but there's just so much going on, like right before the merge. I guess one other thing that I wanted to talk to you about today on this podcast was also the amount of staked ETH that was removed from the curve pool. Um by Three Arrows Capital Wallet. Apparently, on-chain data analytics Nansen said that around $33 million worth of staked ETH was removed from the curve pool this past week. Um, and I think this is also, you know, like not the only kind of DeFi activity we're seeing in advance of the merge. We're seeing um, other lending providers and other DeFi apps um, put like these safeguards around people trying to borrow a ton of ETH as well. Um, what do you make of this kind of activity? Yeah, I don't know about the three AC um, action. I mean, it, for all we know, that's just purely related to you know their bankruptcy or, or whatever you want to call the process that they're in. Um, but yeah, I mean, I saw that like there's a lot of borrow happening on ETH. I think people are, I, I don't know, optimistic about <laughs> some value uh, accruing to ETHW at least in the short term that they can capture, you know, by holding ETH through the merge and then splitting those coins. Um, I think that's unlikely. I still think it's pretty unlikely that this ETHW fork has any real success. All, all, there's so much baggage on Ethereum that will become useless um, in a post-merge environment if you're not on the main net, right? All the stable coins, all the DeFi pools that have stable coins, all going to be 
totally wrecked. And I think ETHW, they're going to freeze them. I mean, it's, it's hard to me to see how that's going to be valuable. Also, with this much borrow and everyone, all the all the opportunistic trading firms thinking about this, that's going to be a very crowded trade. Like if, every, if, if ETW does launch and everybody immediately dumps it, like that thing's going to go to zero very fast. Um, so I don't know. I, I have seen that. Um, okay. One or two others to talk about uh, before we go to Brandon. Um, yeah, Binance. <laughs> this this is super interesting. Binance basically has removed all the USDC trading pairs from its uh, its order book. They now everything will be quoted against their own stablecoin BUSD. Um, you know, this is kind of like what what Coinbase did when they they sort of combined all the USD trading pair uh, base trading assets into like just USD. They used to have a Bitcoin USDC uh, trading pair and a Bitcoin USD trading pair. Then they said, no, like these are all just USD, right? Like if you send us USDC, then it's USD. If you want to withdraw, you can withdraw USD or USDC. Like, But from their internal perspective, it's identical. It seems kind of like that's what Binance is doing here. You, you can still deposit and withdraw USDC, um, but they're just not going to list it. Um, the same is true, by the way, for PAX dollar, which is USDP, true, true USD. Um, also, although interestingly, not tether, as far as I can tell, USDT, um, still, still live there on Binance. So, um, but BUSD is the third largest stable coin by circulating supply. So Binance, I, I don't know if this is, I, I happen to think this is sort of neutral, but, um, you know, but it, it's probably net supportive of BUSD's growth overall. Mm-hmm. Does this does this remind you of any of the takeaways from the stablecoin report, where all exchanges and even like decentralized finance exchanges will have their own stablecoin for reasons of like pulling together liquidity or just having more efficiency on their on their platform to do everything through their own issued stablecoin? Yeah, it's a lot easier if you're a centralized exchange because you can just convert that's what Binance is doing right but um you know our colleague Charles Yu wrote that great report digital dollars one of his main takeaways and i think driven by the success of of maker of ave launching their own stable curve is 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 preparing to launch their own stable um and then and then also Binance circle you could even say bitfinex with tether right these major right. platforms sort of operating with their own stable coin um you know, he predicted that 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 will continue. That major major platforms, whether centralized or decentralized, will adopt their own and and separately evolve. You'll start to see some of these, the most successful of them, evolve into these super apps, right? Yeah. Certainly on the DeFi side. So you'll have trading, lending, stable coins, other services, all inside, say, Curve or Ave or Maker or. Um, so I it, it it is similar. It's interesting. Um, you know, the only other thing to point out here is that BUSD is issued by Paxos under the New York uh, Department of Financial Services license that Paxos has. Um, so they're among the most transparent and conservative from a collateral standpoint. So this could end up being a really interesting case where Binance ends up sort of at the forefront of the regulated stablecoin wars, which is sort of you know, ironic given Binance's long history of sort of, you know, jurisdiction hopping around the world. That's a good point, especially because maybe it's intentional then for Binance to try and and make this move by making their image, their regulatory image a a bit cleaner, a bit squeakier. Yeah. Um, One one very last point, and then we're going to Brandon to talk about Bitcoin. Coinbase, 
has made a proposal. This is like sort of late breaking today and, and very controversial. They've made a proposal in the MakerDAO governance forum to take on $1.6 billion worth of USDC um, from Maker's PSM. So that's collateral held by Maker. Um, and then and then pay Maker back um, some interest uh, on that. Um, so rather than, say, sitting inert in the uh, MakerDAO uh, price stability module, it would sit in a Coinbase Prime custody account where it could earn interest. Um, and and I guess this would supposedly this would raise about twenty four million dollars in revenue for MakerDAO, uh, the DAO. Um, this is met with a lot of controversy, right? I mean, a lot of folks. There's this dispute we've been talking about with Maker, which really sort of embodies the bifurcation possibilities in DeFi more broadly, following Tornado Cash about whether MakerDAO should sort of move more in the direction of real world assets and sort of assets that have um, connection to uh, regulatable, addressable, regulated entities, or whether it should sort of pivot back towards its original founding, which is solely use digital assets, ETH in particular, um, as the collateral upon which DAI is issued. Um, and this is just really heating up. It seems to me that if they do this with USDC sent to Coinbase, that will really put to bed um, a lot of the argument about whether or not they should actually jettison USDC as a collateral type, which is what Rune Christensen, the the founder, um, and others have been arguing as a means to protect censorship resistance of DAI. So, um, that, that really, I mean, if you're interested in the in DAOs, in DeFi, in sort of the this schism that we talked a lot about last week when we talked with Bimnet and Trey um, between a regulated DeFi versus sort of a cypherpunk DeFi. Go follow the MakerDAO uh, governance uh, boards because this whole conversation is really heating up there. And, and Maker, I think, still is the largest TVL um, of any DeFi app. Um, so very interesting playing out there. All right, let's pivot. We've got Brandon Bailey uh, uh, from Galaxy Digital Mining, um, a Bitcoin mining guru, friend of ours. Welcome, Brandon. Good to have you here. Thanks, guys. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So you you wrote, uh, along with a couple others on the team, um, an awesome report on uh, Bitcoin mining, the updated report. You and Simrit uh, Dinsa and Guillaume Girard, uh, also known as Gigi. I think I pronounced that right. Don't hate me, Gigi, uh, if I didn't. Um, uh, the 2022 Bitcoin, uh, mid-year Bitcoin mining update. So um, this is a super comprehensive update, by the way. So if you're at all interested in the Bitcoin mining industry, this is your go-to. Again, you can read it at galaxy.com slash research. Um, the, the last one you guys wrote uh, in January was also the, the most comprehensive I'd seen. So you guys have really kicked this into gear, man. Um, tell me uh, just off the top, I mean, it's been a rough year for Bitcoin Um and probably a rougher year for Bitcoin miners, although maybe that's uh, maybe equally bad, <laughs> um, right? Declining prices, increasing energy costs, um, increasing competition. Um, what are the key takeaways here? Or, or maybe set the stage for us, Brandon. What is the environment that Bitcoin miners find themselves in today at a high level? Yeah, absolutely. I, I would say that since the start of the year, we've really seen a wave of headwinds. I think when we wrote our initial report kind of summarizing the the year that miners and both bitcoin had at 2021 you know we saw bitcoin in a, a raging bull market still uh, still with the bitcoin price you know in the the 50k range um and so you had a lot of exuberance 
um, you know, as it related to Bitcoin and the mining industry to kind of close out the year. In the first half of 2020, 2022, it's been quite the opposite where you've had a declining Bitcoin price. Um, you've also had a continued increase in, in network difficulty. Um, those two things combined have worsened mining economic conditions. Um, and as a result, you've seen, um, you know, tighter capital market activity. You've seen miners start to uh, become cash constrained um, and find themselves in a, a situation where they still have significant capex payments um, and, and debt payments that they needed to make with reduced cash flow um, that has put them in a tighter financial position. And simultaneously, we've also had issues with rising energy prices um, at the same time, which has also, uh, you know, made it more difficult or challenging um, for miners with respect to their operating margins. And then we've also had other issues as it relates to regulatory challenges, more scrutiny as it relates to ESG. Um, we've also had some issues with supply chain delays still impacting the ability for miners to get key electrical infrastructure equipment uh, in a timely manner, which has made it more difficult to get the required infrastructure stood up so that they could even plug in and energize these machines. So it's it's really been a wave of just headwinds is uh, uh, for what we've seen in regards to the first half of the year for miners. Yeah, it's it's definitely been a tough time. Um, other other bear markets have have obviously been tough as well. Um, but this this one feels different. For example, you mentioned um, difficulty. I mean, difficulty today is less than a percent below its all time high. Even though the last time that uh, you know Bitcoin the the dif so the difficulty was higher. The only time Bitcoin difficulty was higher was all the way back in early May when Bitcoin was trading in like the high thirty low forty thousand dollar range. Um, which is just kind of wacky to think about. I mean, Bitcoin was trading, actually, I should say Bitcoin was trading at 30, around 31,000 the last time it was this high. Um, you know, it's a lot lower today at like 18.8. Um, and yet difficulty is super high. Um, and along with that, obviously, hash rate, hash rate is high. Uh, so why is that? Why is hash rate high? Why is, where is this hash rate coming from if, if all the miners are struggling? Yeah, absolutely. I, I would say what's really driving that phenomena is the fact that <clears throat> hash rate is kind of a, a lagging sort of indicator and metric, if you will. So effectively, what we had in, in 2021, when, you know, we were in the raging bull market, you had Bitcoin at 50, 60K. You had a lot of miners entering into uh, basically futures contracts with respect to ASIC purchases. So you've had you know miners place tens to uh, over a hundred exahash worth of ASIC um, purchase orders in 2021 with scheduled delivery dates slated for 2022. And so you had this backlog effectively of hash rate that was scheduled to be delivered in online. And the way that a lot of these um, contracts work is that a lot of these machines are already paid for up to you know 70% or so, or in some cases they might be uh, paid for entirely. Um, and so a lot of the miners, despite um, you know declining Bitcoin price overall, um, were still uh, put into a situation where they'd still be net better off plugging in these machines. Um, and even still. You know, when you think about the marginal, purely just the marginal cost of production, a lot of these miners are still able to 
generate a, a profit, um, at least looking at it from just the marginal perspective, um, which tells you that, you know, they're still net better off plugging in these machines. And these machines that have been delivered to you are like next generation, super efficient machines, right? What are we talking like the X19 something or others, J Pro Ts, what are they called? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it's a lot of S19 series uh, machines and some of the M30 uh, S series machines from uh, MicroBT. Um, but yeah, it's a lot of S19 J Pros. And even more recently, I think, um, and, and we can touch on this a little bit later, but I think some of the uh, more recent spikes you've seen in network difficulty are due to Bitmain's latest generation machine, which is the S19 even newer XP, even newer yeah. and even more efficient starting to come online as those deliveries started in July. Brandon, it sounds like Bitmain is just continuing to kill it when it comes to the hardware, Bitcoin hardware manufacturing market. Do you foresee any kind of competition, more decentralization when it comes to Bitcoin hardware manufacturers um, in the in the months, like in the second half of this year, perhaps in the years upcoming with more public miners based out of the U.S. now, I think this has been a concern for a while in the in the Bitcoin community. But Bitmain is just continuing, I think, to to really dominate this space. Yeah, definitely. Bitmain is 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 clearly the front runner uh, as far as ASIC manufacturers go. Uh, the S19 is probably the most popular um, ASIC that that is uh, been procured and purchased by miners out there. I think that um, it's going to be really, really difficult to kind of dethrone Bitmain's dominance over the ASIC market. MicroBT um, has their next generation machine that's slated to come out fairly soon here, the M50, uh, which is uh, an improved machine in terms of efficiency over their M30 series, but still um, not quite as efficient as the Bitmain S19 XP. So. Bitmain is still the leader in terms of efficiency with respect to their ASICs. So um, I think it's it's still going to be difficult for other ASIC manufacturers to compete um, with Bitmain, just in terms of the quality of their products or certainly the efficiency of their products. But I do think we'll see some um, other entrants into the ASIC manufacturing space. Certainly Intel um, has been one of the, the bigger um, players that has been talked about more recently with um, their sort of, um, call it like white label uh, chip that they're planning to introduce into the market. And they've been working with a number of uh, miners on, um, you know, kind of experimenting and testing um, those chips. So I think that Intel will certainly make a, a bit of a splash. I don't think that they'll necessarily take away the, the dominance of Bitmain, but then you have some other ASIC manufacturers as well, like Canon. Um, they their machines are um, used by a few miners, but, you know, still a smaller market share overall. And then there's been rumors of um, potentially uh, like Blockstream working on in a new ASIC product with their acquisition of, I think it's Spondylese is how it's pronounced. But um, there's just little information that's been, uh, you know, available regarding them entering the space. It's really not easy to make these machines, eh? For sure. It, it certainly requires a lot of technical expertise. And the other big challenge there is getting capacity at the foundries as well, which is very, very difficult if you're more of a, a startup ASIC manufacturer. You're just not going to have the, the credibility um, or maybe even the funds to really secure that capacity. And 
you're not just competing with other ASIC manufacturers, but you're competing with the apples of the world and all of the other larger companies for that capacity at the foundries. Brandon, uh, let's talk about some of the other findings that you had. Um, one that was interesting was the geographic. Actually, before we go on, I should say, while we're talking about hash rate, as a consequence of of what you've already talked about and and these other headwinds that we're going to talk about, you, your team has lowered your end of year expectation for hash rate. I think you had it around 330x a hash per second at when you made a prediction for the end of 2022 earlier this year. And now you're at about 250. What goes into that? I mean, you think these the hash rate increases slow, basically? Yeah. I, I, so what really drove a lot of our original prediction from 2021 was just looking at sort of the sheer amount of hash rate um, that was just on order by by public miners with over 100 exahash worth of hash rate on order by call it 15 to 20 names, um, which is just a tremendous amount. I mean, at the time, I think network hash rate was around 175 exahash. Um, so there was just a, a tremendous amount of um, volume that that could have potentially been installed um, just looking at it based on end of the year numbers. But as we um, you know, came back to revisit our projection, we lowered it largely driven by um, a lot of the construction delays with respect to the uh, megawatt capacity and build out. I mean, that's one of the biggest constraints if there's just not enough rack space available for one, uh, I think to be able to get to 300 exahash, a lot of it is also being driven by the fact that several of the public miners where at least we get some insight into how we're thinking about um, you know their their forward looking projections with respect to hash rate many of them have revised their 2022 end of year targets by as much as 40 or 50 percent um, and are pushing out growth into 2023 that plus the the, the other combination of um, just reduced mining economics where you, you're definitely seeing, Home miners, as an example, home mining was a big trend that uh, was talked a lot about at the end of 2021. Most home miners cannot mine profitably. So you have lots of those um, types of people um, no longer mining. You have smaller mining operations that are no longer profitable. And it's just really, really hard to foresee um, a decent number of miners being able to secure rack space and a favorable cost of electricity to be able to justify um, a really significant ramp up in, in hash rate. Awesome. Let's go into some of the other findings. Brandon, you talked about the geographic distribution of mining and various trends. Um, had a lot of interesting stuff here. I mean, one of the things you looked at was the Cambridge Center for Alternative Finances ongoing um, coverage of this issue. Talk about um, what you found. Um, I'll throw out some of the numbers here since I'm looking at it too. You said the U.S., uh, according to the CCAF, uh, the U.S. is 37.8% of global hash rate, China at 21, Kazakhstan at 13.2, Canada at 6.4, Russia at 4.6, and then a bunch of you know stragglers behind that. Um, you know, does that jive with what you think um, when you when you look at the space, um, or you know, what's the what's your take on CCAF's numbers there? Yeah, I, I would say overall, I. I generally think that it, it's a line like I particularly agree with the the US numbers just in terms of the US based um, hash rate market share I think that that 
probably makes sense. The China number, I think, um, was a bit of a surprise. 21% feels a bit high overall. Um, I think when we looked a little bit more deeply into the uh, Cambridge Center for Alternative Finances report, we found kind of the breakout of hash rate, um, specifically in the U.S. Interesting, they, they claim that Georgia had, they, had the largest share of hash rate in the U.S., which um, I found to be a, a little bit surprising, just given how much um, hash rate is slated to go to Texas because of the ERCOT market um, with over, I think, one and a half to two gigawatts of potential capacity scheduled to come online specifically in that market over the next few years, still think that Texas is really the place to be and the, the dominant market in the U.S. There's certainly a decent amount of mining that does take place in Georgia. And there's um, a couple of operators that we, in the sort of the, the um, graphic that we put together, we just wanted to highlight some of the larger hosting providers and even publicly traded mining companies and where it, their hosting facilities are located. And if you take a look at that graphic in the report, you can see there's still quite a, a few large scale miners that are in Georgia, but the lion's share of them certainly are um, in, in the Texas market. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think just generally like as a, you know, censorship resistance question, you know, geographic concentration, right? I mean, I know, you know, I, I want, you know, there to be a wide distribution of Miners across various legal jurisdictions, you know, is there a point at which, I mean, if we take 37% in the U.S. as, you know, as gospel is totally right, is there a point at which you become concerned if it keeps growing as a, as a share? For sure. I mean, I would say that, um, you know, it, it certainly feels like a bit of a risk, right? Like not all of the hash rate that is concentrated in the U.S. could, should take place in Texas. Um, you know, it, that, that feels like a, a bit of a centralization risk at the end of the day. I think you would ultimately like to see hash rate um, dispersed a little bit more evenly, even just within the U.S. across some of the different states. But a lot of it is going to come down to, I think, the regulatory front. I think Texas has been one of the more favorable or certainly pro-Bitcoin mining states just in general. And then based on um, the structure of ERCOT as a as an energy market, um, it is just certainly more uh, of a favorable market to to even, um, you know, just operate and, and have a Bitcoin mining operation set up. But one of the things that we touched on in the report is sort of this potential to play um, sort of like a regulatory or geographic um, sort of like arbitrage play under the assumption that, you um, in the event that ERCOT becomes harder to do business in, whether they, they just make it um, more difficult to stand up additional infrastructure, or if there are other states that start to implement more pro-Bitcoin mining policy, it may make more sense to have a series of smaller scale mining operations um, dispersed across the US versus large scale mega mines. Um, so that's something to keep an eye on. I, you know, The trend certainly has been setting up a much larger scale mining operation, most mostly in, in Texas, but it's certainly something to consider. One of the trends that we've seen, obviously, is the rise of U.S. publicly traded miners, um, literal public companies that mine Bitcoin, 
very recent trend, I'd say over the last, I guess it's September. So really over the last year, um, maybe year and a half, um, you know, that's brought a lot of transparency into the industry. I know it's something you guys um, rely on a lot for information, the the filings and press releases that these publicly traded miners make. Um, one thing that we, you know, get asked a lot by our clients and, and by those in the market we deal with is, you know, are miners selling? How much do they have left to sell? You guys did great work cataloging and aggregating all of the sales that public miners um, reported uh, over the year. Um, and I think you pegged June as, at least for now, the sort of peak uh, in miner sales, um, should say BTC sales by publicly traded miners, right? Um, where do you see that trend going? I mean, if there's more pain ahead for miners, um, but they've sold a lot of their treasuries already, um, you know, what, what happens next? For sure. That, that is a great question. June was certainly the peak month for Bitcoin miner sales. Even looking forward, um, looking at July and August, we still see elevated levels of Bitcoin sales from public miners but nowhere near the peak that we saw in June. What I think is going to be interesting on a go forward basis here as we, we have hit um, sort of new hash price lows, um, just even as of this week with Bitcoin dipping back under 19K and uh, network hash rate, uh, hash rate back over 200, 220 exahash. Um, if, if these kind of mining economics sustain themselves, there could be more um, spikes in Bitcoin sales towards, I'd say, Q4 um, of this year. Um, one thing to keep in mind, however, is that a lot of the sales that took place, particularly in the month of June, went to deleveraging. Um, for the miners that had a, a high exposure to debt, a lot of those sales went to paying back some of that debt, um, shoring up their balance sheet, so I'd say miners overall are in a little bit of a better financial position than they were at the start or the earlier portion of Q2. That doesn't mean that they're completely out of harm's way, but they are in a slightly better position. Um, and a lot of these miners just also have a lot less Bitcoin in terms of Bitcoin holdings that they could pull from to potentially sell. I think a lot of the sales that are taking place on a go forward basis are just, you know, they're selling maybe anywhere from 50 to 100% of what they mine in a given month, but they're not necessarily dipping into their treasury as much. Um, so I think that that's something to keep uh, an eye out for. I think the other benefit that is helping some of the miners as well is with respect to CapEx payments. A lot of them had to sell so that they could make their CapEx payments with respect to infrastructure and ASICs. Um, Bitmain and MicroBT are now issuing credits or at least discounts um, on those remaining um, purchase orders. So it is reducing sort of the um, amount of, of capital that they are going to be required to spend in future months, with his, which is also sort of helping them a little bit. So um, a couple other trends. One, you talk a lot about energy in the report. I mean, we know broadly across the world, I even mentioned, I think, at the top of the podcast about energy in Europe. Um, but energy is getting more expensive here as well. Um, and everywhere. In fact, I actually just got my expected bill, electric bill. It's double um, what it was last month. And that's not from the summer. Like that's like we're running air conditioning both last month and this month. Right. So um, I don't know if that's related. Maybe that's just an anecdote. But 
Um, you know, how you, know, you said Texas is the predominant location for sort of the expansion of the mining industry in the U.S. Um, what does energy look like there? I mean, it, it looks like from your report, uh, you know, it's going up. For sure. Energy prices have been steadily rising. It's been a huge headwind, I think, for the industry. A lot of the commentary that we even heard from some of the public miners, um, you know, Q2 earnings reports was with respect to, you know, their uh, exposure to energy prices and trying to implement some sort of power strategy on a go forward basis. One of the big drivers, particularly in ERCOT with respect to, to energy prices, is um, there's a, a high correlation between uh, energy, like what you see uh, in energy prices in ERCOT and natural gas prices. And so we have a chart uh, in the report that just kind of shows the, the price increases that natural gas has experienced over um, the first half of the year. And um, it's, it's pretty much, it's, it's been trading at near all-time highs in the $9 range, which has been one of the biggest drivers of energy prices in ERCOT. Um, so a lot of this comes down to the exact power strategy that miners do have whether you have a fixed price power purchase agreement, if you were able to lock in some sort of price or whether or not you're still taking on some variable price uh, exposure with respect to your energy prices. And most miners have some sort of hybrid between the two. They might have some per, uh, percentage of their, their overall capacity fixed and, some, and the other or remaining portion exposed to variable pricing, which is causing an increase in their, their overall blended average. Um, the other very interesting or critical thing about that is that in order to get a forward hedge or in, in order to um, essentially hedge or lock in a specific price of power, it's very, very expensive to do that or, or essentially pay for a forward hedge contract. Typically, it requires um, some amount of margin, typically 6% of the total contract value. And I would say for anywhere for between 100 and a 200 megawatt um, forward hedge at say $50 a megawatt hour for five years, you're talking about having to post cash margin of maybe around 20 million. A lot of the miners today do not have the liquidity to be able to do that. And so on a go forward basis, many of them are going to be forced to have to find ways to deal with and manage um, you know, the variability with respect to energy prices with no real means to hedge. So that's something to really keep an eye on on a go forward basis, especially what happens with natural gas pricing as it can uh, continue to squeeze several miners um, on the cost of revenue side of the equation. Yeah, it looks like from your data here that uh, is in the report that every U.S. region um, is up year over year energy cost, average energy electricity rate, I should say. Um, the Pacific non-contiguous region up a lot. Uh, what is that? <laughs> Pacific non-contiguous. Is that is that uh, um, non-contiguous? Are we talking Alaska? I think <laughs> like that's in right. Hawaii? I, yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> but but <laughs> everywhere. I should see. see. Yeah, the data comes from the EIA, so um, it's just kind of it's kind of humorous because, uh, uh, but it's up everywhere. Just to be clear, it's um, it's pretty shocking chart actually. You look at it; it's literally New England, Middle Atlantic, East, North, Central, West, North, uh, Central, South Atlantic, blah blah blah. Every single one is up electricity prices year over year. So, 
Um, I mean, that's you got ASIC prices are also coming down, right? So the miners that have taken loans based on ASIC collateral, does that, I mean, you guys do finance. How does that work exactly? Is that like, could they be at risk of getting liquidated because of the the price of the ASICs that they post as collateral? Certainly. I mean, it, it's definitely been a challenge. I mean, both from the lender's perspective and for the, the miner that has taken out this loan. From the lender's perspective, the risk is that you now, your collateral, your loan is basically under collateralized based on the, the current share market value of the ASIC. So that's not a great position to be in if, you, if you're the lender, certainly. And the challenge also for the borrower is that you're likely um, you know, paying an amount, like you're basically overpaying for these machines at this point, right? The fair market value, like if you were able to go procure new machines, you would be able to buy them at a rate that could be, you know, 50, 60% less than what you're effectively paying through this lease. And so, you know, it's been a real challenge kind of working through, I think, um, you know, just more broadly with respect to ASIC back finance, it's, it's been a, a challenging market just kind of working through um, some of those deal structures and just the current state of some of those loans. Um, I think you're, you're seeing or hearing about a lot of restructuring of terms, just kind of extending out payments and other creative solutions to try to right size a lot of those loans. It's interesting because if I had a bunch of capital and some hosting capacity and you know some kind of favorable energy, which still exists, people can hunt out good energy prices. They, they always exist somewhere. Um, this would be a great time to get into the market as a new miner, but you had such an explosion of the mining industry last year, really funded by U.S. capital markets, equity and debt, um, which also Brendan has all the great data on that in the report as well, um, which has totally dried up. So now you've got all these miners that sort of got, you know, I don't, for lack of a better term, got a little bit drunk on easy money along, you know, it wasn't just miners, it was everyone in capital markets, Um but and, and grew dramatically and made these plans for expansive growth over you know the next year, two, three years, and then the market has really turned on them at that time. But if you were, if you you know had the money and sat on the sidelines or or were more prudent, um, you could be in a great position now. So um, you know <laughs> that may not be the position that most are in. So maybe that's that's mostly hypothetical from my point of view at the moment, but. What can miners do? Let's let's you know pivot the conversation a little. How can they um, improve their operations, um, or what steps can they take to you know weather this storm uh, going forward? I I would say just you know it it's so important to be prudent. I kind of think of Bitcoin mining as a little bit of like the tortoise and the hare. Like it's so important not to get too over levered or or get um you know too overexposed with respect to risk that you're taking because the market can pivot very quickly but i do think that the opportunity right now for miners um you know i think you really have to focus on treasury management so a lot of what we saw um just kind of going back to 2021 when we were in the bear market um, you know, the, the part of our uh, the solutions that we offer at Galaxy as the mining team is some treasury management solutions that allow Bitcoin miners to sort of lock in a certain, uh, a certain uh, range of profit with respect to the Bitcoin that they do mine. During the bull market, we saw a lot of miners really unwilling to give up any Bitcoin upside. 
they they did not want to essentially um, create a floor with respect to their their downside um, with Bitcoin price in exchange for giving up some of that upside. Many of these companies would be in way better positions if they had um, thought about treasury management a little bit more strategic, uh, strategically or prudently in the past. Um, I still think that there's opportunities currently to take advantage of, of treasury management with respect to, um, you know, it, it doesn't feel as good to do this now, but you can at least um, create a certain floor for yourself with respect to, um, it, you know, what Bitcoin price you are selling your mind Bitcoin at. But I also think that having a power strategy is the other side of the equation for miners. A lot of miners did not have a true um, power strategy in place. In fact, there are very few miners that did, and they're now really seeing, uh, you know, huge benefits as a result of, of being forward-looking with power. That that's related to um, locking in a, a forward hedge so that you can have a fixed cost of power, or even sort of negotiating um, your your power uh, agreement so that you could even sell power back to the grid and particularly um, diversify your revenue streams. You can take advantage of um, spikes in energy prices by selling that power back to the grid versus just purely mining and, and only being uh, only having exposure to the Bitcoin mining economics. But I do think that on a, on a go forward basis, um, miners certainly have to be a little bit more strategic about locking in, um, you know, their revenue um, with respect to using different hedging instruments and solutions. And I think that that's also going to give them a more favorable execution in the capital markets on a go forward basis. When I think about ASIC back loans and MiFi and all of these other different products and services, I think you're going to be able to get a lot better terms. Um, and particularly with that lender, if you're able to say that, hey, we have a locked in expected range of revenue because we've hedged our um, our Bitcoin price exposure and we also have sort of a, a fixed power purchase agreement. Um, so that's that's how I'm kind of thinking about this going forward. Yeah, it seems like the prudent thing to do for any sort of commodity producer. Um, it's it seems like the miners got really caught up in sort of the bull market themselves, um, and I mean, not wanting to give up upside when um, you're you're essentially a, a commodity producer, right? I mean, derivatives you know exist and and were really created originally to help you know farmers, <laughs> right? And and people to create. Uh, and these things are, it turns out, you know, Bitcoin price is pretty seasonal, right? I mean, we constantly see these big booms and busts. And so it, it makes sense, I think, on a going forward basis to to really make use of derivatives in particular seem like a very like solid option here. Um, I, have we seen any of our old friend um, hash rate derivatives themselves? Have we seen any movement on this, Brandon, right? Like, and, and I mean... Obviously, you can hedge and, and hedge your Bitcoin price. You could even hedge your your energy cost, perhaps, if you have variable cost, if you have good energy trading. But um, what about hash rate itself? I mean, I mean, we I remember lots of folks have been trying to work on this. We we did some research on this back at Fidelity. Is there any movement on that? For sure, I think um, you know it's been slow, but I, I do think that you're going to see more of these kinds of products emerge. I mean, it's a very very challenging. Um, sort of product to structure. But I do think that fairly soon here, maybe towards the end of the year, or certainly in 2023, you're going to see what I'd call maybe like alpha versions or beta versions of different derivative products that would allow you 
to start to hedge for either difficulty or hash price. Um, you know, I agree, like miners today have generally pretty good tools to solve or hedge for, for Bitcoin price. They certainly have the tools to hedge for the energy costs. It's really with respect to hash price, which takes into account both network um, uh, hash rate or difficulty and Bitcoin price. That as a hedging instrument would be very, very useful just to guarantee you some range of, of profitability for your hash rate. Um, that and then also just being able to hedge out network difficulty. There are some miners out there that still want the Bitcoin price upside or exposure to the upside, but want to be able to hedge out, you know, huge spikes in difficulty. So I think, you know, it's it's coming. I know we've, we've heard that a lot over the over the years and in past quarters, but I think you will start to see early versions of these products emerge um, towards end of the year and again, 2023. Soon TM. Uh, we... I'd love to see it. Um, it's it. I I haven't done a ton of work on this myself, but I do know it is hard to structure. I remember the the issue we were finding um, several years ago when we were looking into this was who was the natural buyer on the buy side of this, right? I mean, and that was that was sort of a a tough question. Um, it seemed like that was just people that are long Bitcoin, um, but you know, derivatives markets are complex and huge. Um, I'll never rule out that someone would take the other side of those bets. Um, so hope, hopefully, we see those come to fruition soon. Um, Brandon, before we wrap it up, is there anything else that, uh, you want to say or any other advice you want to give to miners, um, since you're in this market day to day? Yeah. I mean, the, the advice I would give, I mean, just kind of looking out at what's going on is just treasury management. I mean, it's, as we, we mentioned, um, not just a moment ago, um, but in other commodity based businesses, um, hedging is 100% a part of the strategy. It's so important to be able to hedge your, um, your, your input and output cost. Um, and I think that that's something that um, all miners should really take a lot more seriously with respect to just treasury management so that um, as an industry, you know, we can kind of avoid having these, these massive sort of highs and lows with respect to the, inter- uh, the industry and make it a little bit more um, stable on a, on a go forward basis. I think that it will, uh, make it easier from a capital markets perspective and also just allow for um, more capital and liquidity to be deployed um, if we're able to sort of take off some of the risk and, and make it a little bit easier from like a modeling and a projection perspective. Awesome. Thank you, Brandon. Um, what a good conversation. Lots happening in in the Bitcoin mining industry. Truly a massive industry at this point. Um, and great to see the U.S. Um, still leading, I think, uh, given our strong property rights and, um, you know, abundant abundant energy resources. Um, so that's great. I can't imagine what this situation would look like if Europe was the leading uh, geography for, for Bitcoin mining right now. Would, it would not be pretty. <laughs> yeah, we'd see a massive turnoff in hash rate. There'd be there'd be container ships filled with ASICs traversing the Atlantic um, to try to find you know more stable energy. But um, we'll really appreciate it, Brandon. Remind our our listeners check out the 2022 uh, mid year Bitcoin mining update. Um, it's at galaxy.com slash research. Um, it looks great on the new website, but you can also download an extremely beautiful PDF of that report. Um, so check that out. Um, and and we've got some more stuff I know coming from Brandon and the Bitcoin mining team at Galaxy uh, from a research perspective. 
Uh, we didn't get into a lot of stuff here that I know is also in the report. Regulation has been very interesting. We didn't really talk about the interplay between ETH moving to proof of stake away from proof of work and, of course, Bitcoin continuing with proof of work, um, which I think is a very interesting conversation. Um, so maybe we'll have Brandon back in the next you know couple months to talk about some of those issues um, as they evolve more. But a lot of that is in the report. So go check it out. Um, and, and that's all we've got this week on Galaxy Brains. Thank you, Brandon Bailey. Um, thank you, my friend, Christine Kim, as always, uh, for joining. And um, we'll, we'll see you all next week. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, a weekly podcast from Galaxy Digital Research. If you enjoyed the show, please like, rate, review, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to learn more about the work we do at Galaxy Research, sign up for our weekly newsletter at gdr.email. Read our content online at galaxy.com research and follow us on Twitter at GLXY Research. That's all for today. See you next time.